You may be familiar with the famous quote from St. Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. This is a call the Catholic Church has echoed throughout the centuries, calling Catholics to study scripture. But responding to that call isn't always as easy as it seems. Join us today as we learn how to overcome some of the obstacles to studying scripture and discover what we truly find when we break open the Bible with today's special guest, Dr. John Bergsma, professor of theology here at Franciscan University and author of the new book, Bible Basics for Catholics, A New Picture of Salvation History. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and today we'll be discussing discovering God's Word in Scripture. I'm joined here today with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology at Franciscan University, Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University, and Dr. John Bergsma. Uh, John is a professor of theology here at the university. Uh, he received his uh, doctorate uh, from the University of Notre Dame. His expertise is in the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, you know, uh, the Old Testament. He is a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And he's written quite a lot on blogs and articles. And his new book is uh, The Bible Basics for Catholics, uh, which is really the topic of our show today. John, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Yeah. So if we start, you know, I, I opened the, the, the uh, original introduction for the show about the ignorance uh, of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but how do we as Catholics really enter into studying the Bible? What's the easiest way as we, as we think about it? Why is it important for our life of faith? Well, it's important for a life of faith because um, as, uh, as the Second Vatican Council said, uh, picking up on, on a statement of the Fathers, um, uh, meditation on the sacred page is the soul of theology. Uh, so the, all of our theology comes out of God's Word. Theology means the Word of God, Theologos. So unless we're meditating on Scripture, uh, we're not getting God's Word, we're not doing theology. So understanding um, uh, the plan of salvation, uh, God's characteristics, the way He wants to interact with us, all of this is rooted in the Word of God unless we continually go back to that source and kind of draw up from that well, um, we're going to be cut off from that life-giving water that really feeds our spiritual life. And so is there, is there a difference between reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures? Is that, it, we use those terms, is that interchangeable or is there something distinct there? Well, there's, uh, there, no, I wouldn't say they're interchangeable, and then there's different kinds of reading of the scripture. You know, there would be a reading of the scripture where you're trying to get the facts and you're trying to get the story of scripture down, and that may be a quick uh, reading where, where you might take several chapters in a day and try to get through it in a year, for example. There's also um, uh, what we call Lexio, um, which is prayerful reading of Scripture, um, where you might take a, a passage and rather than trying to uh, chew uh, three chapters in a day or four chapters in a day, you might take uh, a few verses and read them over six times and, and pray be, between each uh, 
each reading. So that's a, a more meditative kind of reading. And then there's scripture study, which has different aspects and can have different intensity, but that would be perhaps where you take a passage and uh, try to uh, get at the original language, um, do a study of, of certain words, uh, certain themes, consult dictionaries and other secondary sources. Uh. Though we distinguish methods, though, we really want to make sure that they stay united because on the one hand, just reading the Bible is healthy. On the other hand, intensive study is. And then between the two, meditation, so that you're taking the fruits of careful study and at the same time, you're, you're reading for the purpose of going from the word on the page to the word incarnate. You know, yeah. This is one of the great things about Scripture from a Catholic perspective is that when we speak of the Bible as the word of God, it's sort of like a sign that you see on the way to the Pittsburgh airport that says, airport, 14 miles. It's a sign that points beyond itself. You don't yeah. stop at the sign and wait for your plane. You go to the airport. The word of God written points us to the word of God incarnate. Yes. You know, and so the Catechism puts it so well that ours is not a religion of the book, the way Islam describes itself, the way Judaism often is described in Protestant Christianity. And it doesn't in any way devalue the Bible, if anything, by uniting it to the Word incarnate, to uniting it to the eternal Word that God speaks by which creation comes into existence. I think you end up investing Scripture with a, a sacramental quality that enhances the prayer on the one hand, as well as the academic and rigorous study on the other. You know what strikes me, uh, this uh, apparatus of, of scholarship that both of you, I, I think, are specialists uh, at, which we're expected to crank up when we approach uh, scripture. We, we never apply that to, say, a newspaper. <laughs> we, we just read it or we drink the news, right. what Fred Allen called chewing gum for the eye, you know, when you're watching <laughs> CNN. Uh, but with God's Word, it's different. It's not just that you read it, you have to study it, you immerse yourself in it. And, and couldn't you almost argue, uh, in the spirit of St. Jerome, that while ignorance of, of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, ignorance of Scripture scholarship might be very freeing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have the burden of proof, <laughs> don't you? Certain kinds, yeah, yeah. We could talk about that later, but yeah. there is a lot of scripture scholarship out there that uh, is done by people who don't have faith. Right. Uh, let's be quite honest about it. And if you, you pick up the wrong book at uh, Walden Books, or are they still in business? I, I'm, I'm <laughs> but uh, whatever the bookstore might be, you, you pick up uh, something and uh, you c it could derail uh, your faith. And so th there has to be some care about what scholarship you choose. There, there are also people who have faith, but only apply reason to the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, so that while they will embrace the creed and affirm all the mysteries, nevertheless, they won't bring their faith to bear upon their study of Scripture in order to kind of fit into the academy right. because right. it's a natural, and that means non-supernatural, it's a right. scientific, that means non-spiritual sort of exercise, you know. It's a kind of schizophrenia that we find not uncommon, you know, in the, uh, the professional realm of biblical scholarship. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I once knew a guy in Rome who, who had that mindset. Uh, uh, he was getting his degree at the Biblicum, and he had at least as many degrees already as Aristotle, and he was <laughs> intimidatingly uh, learned. And I remember asking him, how many languages do you need to know? And he said, well, about a dozen, and one of those languages was Aramaic. And when I expressed astonishment that he'd be able to speak and read the language that Christ spoke, because Christ didn't speak Greek or Latin, and I don't think he spoke English. He spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. And 
I said, what an advantage this gives you. You know, what a point of entry into the mystery of God. And he said, you know, we never talk about God. We bracket those questions of faith. We try to pursue a neutral academic scholarship. I was horrified by that. I think the friendship ended right there on the street corner. But are there a lot of people like that? Uh, you, you'll are you like there, that, John? Well, I, I, would, I would claim not to be. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, th that kind of deadens the, the joy and the excitement yeah. of, um, of studying God's Word, of teaching it, of being a Bible scholar. Um, I've always struggled to, to uh, unite my faith with my scholarship yeah. and, um, and to, to keep uh, a focus on, on what we're about when we're reading God's Word, which is to get into contact yeah. with God. Yeah. And if we lose sight that, that the Word is supposed to bring us into contact with God and just becomes an end in itself, which is yeah. what Scott was trying yeah. to right. talk about with right. the sign analogy, then we really get derailed. Yeah, and I think sometimes we can get lost in this picture. You're, you all have PhDs in theology. I think sometimes when we talk about reading, I think people are comfortable. Even meditating, uh, the layman is comfortable with it. When we talk about study, uh, I, I think that some people get uh, anxious with that, thinking you do have to have a PhD in order to go and study Scripture. Um, and, and what really, when we look forward, particularly as, a, as a, a layman without necessarily the scholarly background, what's some of the obstacles that they have when they're going to study Scripture? Because I think that's a, a big crux of, of really breaking open uh, yeah. the Bibles. What are those obstacles that we face? Yeah, I think there's, you know, I can think of three of them uh, right off uh, the top of my head. One would be a cultural obstacle that, mm. that we're still, as Catholics, still getting used to in, in some ways. Uh, uh, reading the Bible um, uh, personally in our homes. Um, maybe that's something our parents didn't do. Uh, so there's a little bit of cultural baggage of uh, resistance to uh, reading Scripture individually, personally, etc. Um, so that's one obstacle. Um, another obstacle would just be the, the, the complexity of uh, the Bible. It's a, it's a large book. It's like trying to eat an elephant. So yeah. if, you, if you start reading, uh, and many people have done this, you know, Genesis is moderately entertaining. You can get through that. Exodus is, at least the first half is as well. But by the time <laughs> you hit Leviticus, game yeah, over. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, all yeah, those laws, sacrifices, what do you do with that? And, and so yeah. most people get uh, lost in Leviticus, basically. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that's a, an obstacle, and I, I would think the, the third obstacle would be uh, a lack of um, the proper tools or, or knowing where to go to mm. get resources. Yeah. Uh, it's useful to when you're when you're trying to study scripture to have, um, say, a Bible dictionary. Um, it's useful to be able to uh, get at the the original languages at least a little bit. And uh, there's actually websites that help even lay people get at the original languages of the Bible without knowing any Greek or or Hebrew. Yeah. They'll take you into these words and pronounce them for you and tell you what they, what they mean. And uh, so it's actually possible for the layperson to, to get into some serious uh, scripture scholarship, but they may not know where to go to find that, those tools. Right. I can think of a fourth obstacle, and we already alluded to it, and that is professional scripture scholarship. Yeah. I think yeah. not only for laity, but also for clergy and teachers. There's something yeah. daunting. I think there's an intimidation factor, and I don't know if it's entirely unintended. You know, <laughs> I think scholars do like to kind of keep this as their exclusive preserve. At least some of them do. You know, when you were talking earlier about that uh, scholar that you met in right, Rome right. at Biblicum, yeah. you know, I, I think that was especially common in the last 40 years of the 20th century, where for the first time we were beginning a kind of ecumenical experiment in joint biblical scholarship with Jews, Protestants, and Catholics yeah. collaborating on such projects as the Anchor Bible Commentary right. and that sort of thing. 
And so you had to kind of check your distinctive beliefs at the door as Jews, Protestants, and Catholics and approach this in a way that was supposedly neutral, although I'm not sure it was ever really neutral. But it's sort of like saying the tone-deaf music critic is more objective and more right. scientific right. than the one who really knows and loves Mozart, you know. Right. But at the same time, I think what we have to do is sort of give a Magna Carta. We have to give uh, liberty to lay people to study this thing because not only are there indulgences attached, you know, right. but there are great blessings as well. And so much of this is accessible. And I remember one of my, uh, my Hebrew professors saying, that about 80% of the Bible is meaningful apart from learning the languages. Yeah. And he said, so learn them and learn them well, but realize that you can get at it, and the people you teach can too, without mastering Greek and Hebrew. Right. Yep. In, in fact, I, I had a professor in college who, who didn't speak Greek or Hebrew, but had mastered uh, English literature, and he read the Bible. He was particularly uh, enamored of the King James Version, you know, those 17th century stately, majestic cadences. Uh, but he treated uh, uh, the Bible as literature as a kind of monument over the grave of Christianity. He, he, <laughs> he didn't credit uh, faith at all. It, it was, it was uh, you know, completely beside the point. But the literary quality, the beauty of the language, that's what right. transported him. There's a sense in which he was a kind of parasite. I mean, he's feeding off a carcass that no longer generates life. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. possesses a, people to, to do that? Just, yeah, sure. I mean, you're, you're talking about somebody who's highly educated and uh, appreciating the scripture for its aesthetic yep. values. You know, yep. uh, on the other hand, I remember doing urban ministry when there was there's a uh, an elderly man in my congregation um, who was disabled and uh, couldn't work, just uh, lived at home and read scripture constantly. He did not even have a a, a high school diploma yeah. and uh, a kind of low reading. Uh, level, but uh, every year he would read through the Bible and he would work through different translations. So the New oh, International Version, right. the RSV, the King James, every year he would try a new translation and just read through. And it was amazing the insight into scripture that he had, yeah. simply because it was in his head and it was prayerful, continuous meditation on the sacred page. And without the scholarly apparatus, he still came to profound theological insights. And I was really impressed with him. Yeah. You know, I remember talking to a fella in England when I gave some lectures there in the early 90s. His name was Leo. He was in his 70s. And he came just out of curiosity to see this convert, you know, talk about the Bible. And at the end, he asked this question about, you know, the medieval peasants who were illiterate, who couldn't read the Bible, were they unsavable, you know? And I said, well, of course not. Besides the gospel being in stone and in stained glass and all of the rest, you know. But I said, Leo, if you're using the medieval peasant as an excuse not to read the Bible, <laughs> I said, you know, I would exhume that peasant from the grave and that peasant would look at you and say, you're using me as an excuse not to read the Bible when you have literacy, when you have computers, when you have all these tools, shame on you, you know? Yeah. And he was like, good point. One year later, he contacted me. He had read the Bible all the way through in his 70s yeah. and had begun leading a Bible study in his parish. Okay. Wow. He said, old dogs can learn new tricks. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, he's probably talking to God in the flesh, now, <laughs> you know, having read these letters uh, on Amen. planet Earth. I mean, isn't that really the connection? Yes. I mean, th this is God's Word. He's speaking to us. Uh, and if we're interested, uh, we, we, we tune in. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and so in your, your book that we're going to kind of break open really in the next chapter, you, you kind of point out, and it's a real tool for people to, to open Scripture, to see it in a new way. Mm -hmm. um, because I think there are, we talked about some of the obstacles, we talked about some of the importances of it, but essentially uh, we need to understand the big picture sometimes. Right. 
And in our next segment, uh, what we'll be discussing is that big picture, looking at the Old Testament, giving a frame of reference. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Scripture says that Jesus is the Lord of God. He is the Lord made flesh. And when you, when you open up that Bible and you dive into the Scriptures, you get a chance to hear His voice. And it's not just you talking to God, it's what He wants to say to you. Uh, scripture in Hebrews, it also says that the Word of God is living and effective, and it is. It's not just a book that was written thousands of years ago and is completely irrelevant to us today. It's something that can change your life. When you open up the, when you open up the Bible, Christ speaks to you. Um, so I'm in love with the scriptures because I'm in love with Jesus. I read the Bible many times, but one day I recognize I am in the Bible, middle of the uh, salvation history. I am in there. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester I had sacraments with Dr. Han. And uh, I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. A every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, God's but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Today we're getting to know the Bible with our special guest, Dr. John Bergsma, author and professor. Um, John, is there an overarching uh, story or a, a big picture to Scripture? And if so, uh, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. There is a big picture. Um, and I think it's important to get the big picture so that we can understand actually what we're reading when we go to Mass. If we go to Mass and don't have the big picture of Scripture, then these three readings uh, that we do, uh, they seem to be without context and how do they relate, etc. So there is a big picture, um, and it's a, a picture focused on covenant. Hmm. Um, and what is a covenant? A covenant is, to use a little bit of technical language, the extension of kinship by an oath. Uh, to unpack that a little bit, it's God making us a family by swearing us into the family. Okay, that's what a covenant is. Yeah. And uh, one of the best ways of summing up the whole story of Scripture really comes from one of the prayers that we use in Mass, uh, the Fourth Eucharistic Prayer. Um, I'm still familiar with the old, tra uh, old translation, but the old translation was, again and again you offered a covenant to man, and through the prophets you taught him to hope for salvation. That pretty much sums up the Old Testament, and mm. then the only thing we need to add to that really is the coming of Christ. He fulfilled what the, the, uh, the prophets promised and brought salvation in the form of a new and eternal covenant. So that story of a sequence of covenants really is the big picture of salvation history. And so that big picture gives us a frame of reference. I almost see it as that kind of a map. Right? Yeah, you know, we absolutely. were talking earlier about the signs that go uh, to the airport, but this is showing us where we're heading uh, throughout time as the hound of heaven is coming after yeah. uh, the human race. I mean, the, the presumption here is that God has spoken into the world. He has right. spoken His Word. Right. I mean, how, how does Hebrews put it in, in, free, in many and varied ways? Yes. He has communicated Himself, you know, through the prophets in a partial way, but in the sending of His Son in a, in a definitive way. I mean, that, that's sort of consoling, isn't it? I mean, yes. that's an exciting piece of news. And, and it, 
it, it breaks, uh, it departs, I think, decisively from the other two uh, world-class religions, the other two biblical partners, you know, the children of Israel and the children of Islam. I mean, they're also people of the book, but the, the fulfillment, the definitive self-expression can only be found in Christianity where the word himself enters into time. I mean, with, with Islam, you have an angel communicating uh, this fullness, which is intrinsically impossible. Only God can speak God's word. Only God can exhaust the depths of the Godhead. So Islam falls short. And as we certainly know from the experience of Israel, they give us a law that we cannot keep. We require uh, some uh, uh, remedy, an escape, a deliverance, which comes in the form of, of Christ. So we leave those two. Uh, monotheistic peoples completely in the dust. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which Israel's yeah. prophets testify to what you just said, because yeah. the prophets of Israel are the ones who announced to their own right. people, you have yeah. not kept the law. Yeah. So the Old Testament ends with so many of the Israelites in exile. It's a sort of story in search right. of an ending, right. yeah. which the New Testament completes in a way that sort of surpasses even the highest hopes of the pious Israelites. Yeah. It's a fulfillment that God brings about by revealing a plan that sort of surpasses their their wildest dreams, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so, if we, we talked earlier, you'd, you'd I thought it could be a title of a book, "Lost in Leviticus." Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, but 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 that, that is a, a stumbling block for for many people yeah. finding all those things. And so, when we talk about covenant, uh, give me some of the reference points for those covenants. Yeah. You know, where do they start, yeah. and and what. Are there any that are more important than others? And, and where do we draw from yeah. looking at the Old Testament? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the whole purpose of writing the book was to convey to uh, you know, people that are just starting out with Scripture the big picture that I wish I had started with rather than waiting for 12 years almost of postgraduate education to finally get it. You know? So why couldn't we have started with the big picture and then gone deeper rather than having to piece it together after so much, so much time? So. Um, and, and really, the, the picture that I'm trying to communicate in the book, you, you, can, f you can find in the catechism. It's, it's there quietly in the catechism. It's also in some of the church fathers, going back to Irenaeus, this mm. idea of the sequence of covenants. But anyway, let's talk about those covenants. Uh, the covenants form these, these big stepping stones. If you imagine the Bible as, as crossing a river, uh, you know, each covenant would be a major stepping stone that you would hop to uh, across. And you start with Adam and then proceed to Noah and then to Abraham, to Moses, to King David, and then you go through um, a time of turmoil where the prophets are predicting uh, the coming of a new covenant, and then that new covenant is ultimately uh, brought to us in Christ. So the basic outline of salvation history in terms of its backbone or stepping stones would be Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, and Christ. That mm. pretty much sums up uh, the canonical scripture. Are there some that are more important or less important? Um, yeah, we, we might say that, although, although all are important. I mean, we could say that the Adamic is foundational. It's a covenant with all creation. It was broken and then renewed in a lower form with Noah. Um, but our, our salvation, our redemption, really starts with the promises and the covenant that were given to Abraham. And uh, the, the covenants that follow from the covenant of Abraham really are a, uh, an, a growth or an outworking or a fulfilling of all those promises that were packed into 
the covenant with Abraham. So you can see the covenant of Abraham is kind of an acorn that grows into the oak tree of salvation. And that's why when you read St. Paul, he's constantly referring to the story of Abraham and unpacking it, seeing that the gospel is already present there. And truly it is. Well, well John, you make everything sound tight as a tick. <laughs> really very neat. <clears throat> uh, and what, what I would uh, want to know is this big picture, this, this overarching view, which strikes me as very comprehensive, complete, uh, compelling even. Why wasn't this communicated to you when you began your, your graduate studies? Oh, for a variety of reasons. I think that uh, we get lost in the, in the forest for the trees, as they say. Yeah. And um, uh, biblical scholars tend to be specialists. That's our educational system. You're uh, putting basically locked up in, in, in the library for two years to write a dissertation on yeah. one chapter of a right. single book, and, yeah. and that becomes your whole world, and so you, you get out and that's all you want to teach, and yeah. so on. So our educational system kind of uh, specializes in, in specialties. Well, did any of your colleagues feel that way about Leviticus? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did my dissertation. Is on. that right? That's right. <laughs> I actually, I'm a Leviticus much, expert. Much to yeah. atone for. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Well, how did you move from Leviticus to the Big Sky? Um, part of it was being being forced to have to teach uh, oh, at the undergraduate yeah. level and having to cover the whole Old Testament in a semester, and then that forced you to step back and think, how am I going to summarize? Yeah. What are the highlights? Yeah. What are the points? And and in that process. Uh, you know, some of these ideas. And, uh, and I get, want to give credit to uh, yeah. Dr. Hahn here. Uh, I get a lot of uh, my seminal stuff uh, from yeah. some of his work, and uh, that was a, a big We influence. were both robbing the father's blind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Another people that we could both mention. That's right. That's true. Well, I, I think in reading this book, though, uh, I, I saw your teacher uh, experience come, yeah. come shining yeah. through. Yeah. Uh, the way that you make it very easy to read. It is clearly not written necessarily for a scholar. It's a, a priest or a layman who is looking to, to really go deeper and understand what this means and what each of those do. But you also even take it very pictorially. You, you talk about big picture. You're, right. you're making that very literally, yeah. a big yeah. picture. Uh, to a really lot of stick pictures. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. yeah. The line drawing from the chalkboard. <laughs> exactly. yes. But it, it, it's a great didactic yeah. tool. Sure. And, and I showed it to my kids and they were like, it's funny and I want to see it. I want to know yeah. more. It makes it easy to understand and memorable so that we can kind of have that big picture with yeah. us. And, and here I thought you wrote the book for the money. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> you know, there's one other thing I think that uh, makes it hard to get the big picture, you know, and why it is that so many specialists specialize in parts of the Bible but don't see the whole. And that is the notion of covenant itself. Yeah. Because, you know, not only in the English language, does covenant have a juridical connotation, but in German, Bund, uh, and other, other languages too, alliance in French and uh, alianza in I Italian. Covenant in ancient Israel really communicated communion, kinship. Right. On the one hand, it had family relations as the foundation. On the other hand, it had liturgical celebrations as the climax. Mm -hmm. So if you're fixing your gaze on the midpoint of law, commandments, missing the commitment and the relations, right fixating on the obligations and forgetting about the, the celebrations, you're really missing something that is going to draw you in and then all of a sudden show you what the whole thing is about. So, you know, as you look at the covenants, as we have seen over the years, you know, Adam is a marriage. Aboard the ark, Noah had three sons who were all married. They form one household. Abraham was a tribal chieftain. There are 12 tribes becoming a national family at Mount Sinai under Moses. 
David witnesses Israel being elevated over all the other nations as a kingdom family. And then finally, Jesus establishes a Catholic, a universal, an international family. And so looking at it through Jewish eyes, as it were, the way you do, you can see that the mountains and the mediators lead to the fulfillment of a fatherly plan that is precisely the family we know as the Catholic Church. And for both of us, this was sort of how we backed ourselves in as Calvinists into the Catholic Church as God's family. And at the same time, discovering at every single point, sacramental liturgy is precisely the high point. Not just the commandments, the Ten Commandments or the additional juridical statutes. And that sort of approach in your book just makes it come alive in a really vivid way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my, my, one of my daughters saying, uh, as we were looking at Abraham and Isaac, saying, how can you understand this story without understanding Christ? I mean, th there's so much that when you read the Old Testament covenants, you see that plan, you see it begin to unfold, and, and I think that that changes everything. It changes who we are in our daily lives, but only if we go in and we really study and see that bigger picture. That's a great example because so often we look at it just like the way Kierkegaard did. You know, it's like the teleological suspension of the ethical. God commands Abraham to kill his son. Yeah. You know, would you do it? And then we debate it in kind of abstract philosophical terms. The point is a covenant sacrifice, a liturgy that God the Father knew was necessary. So he takes a father figure, Abraham, and doesn't say, hey, tonight murder your son. It's a sacrificial liturgy, precisely where the temple will be. And as you point out, you know, that's the key that unlocks this because it also explains why God suspends the sacrifice because he knows that no earthly father, no beloved son, right. no human beings can fulfill this sacrifice and create the covenant that will really fulfill God's plan. So Abraham pre-enacts what God the Father will do. Isaac is the beloved son prefiguring Jesus and it's suspended precisely so later on Golgotha, which is where they were, will be where God the Father shows His love by giving His Son. Right, yeah. And I mean, liturgy, again, right. it's a sacrifice. It isn't just, well, would right. you kill your son if God told yeah. you? Yeah. The, the element of freedom here, I think, is really uh, indispensable. Just as in the order of nature, you can't ask a father to kill his son, so too in the order of supernature, we don't, we don't think of the father as sort of inflicting this this cruelty upon his son. It, it's a sacrifice that the son voluntarily right. uh, 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 shoulders. He takes it on out of a depth of incomprehensible love. Right. And, and the rabbis all were aware of this because if you read the story in Genesis 22, it's Isaac that carries the heavier load up the mountain. He's got this load this of logs This is an infant sacrifice. Back. That's right. Yeah. He's, yep. a, he's a strapping young man who could have overpowered Abraham. Right. So th this wasn't a forcible yes. thing at the top of the yep. mountain. And yep. the rabbis all saw that and said this was a cooperative act between yep. father and son. And yep. that makes it an even more direct and powerful image of the cooperative act of father and son on Calvary, right. yes, the, exactly. the sacrifice of the only begotten son. It's still Jesus. a difficult, you know, it's oh, a so difficult yeah. story to explain. But I think you see that God is having Abraham and Isaac pre-enact right, what God right, the Father yeah. and God the Son are going to do. Yeah. You know, human sacrifice could never effect right. what a life-giving act of love will do by God. It, it's, it's beautifully wrought only if you know the outcome. 
Right, right, you know? right. That's exactly. I mean, right. the, the, the presupposition is that the father loves the son, the son loves the father, and that becomes sort of an ontic ground or a given for this other gesture of love, this donation of the father to the world, the son to the world, uh, in the sacrifice of of, of Calvary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's all familial, and that's really what I'm yeah. trying to communicate yeah. in the book that these sequence of covenants are God again and again inviting us into His family. Yeah. We turn away. Mm-hmm. Finally, He sends Christ. An, an offer we can't refuse, as it were. Yeah, I mean, how odd of God to choose the Jew? Well, because he wanted to start a family. That's right. And this is how he does it. This and these, and these covenants it. lead us to that understanding, and I think that's a, a key, although not the only, uh, obviously, uh, covenant that, that is speaking to Christ uh, and leading us forward. Uh, in our next segment, I, I'd like to continue our discussion of covenants and that understanding and how that leads us to a deeper understanding in the New Testament. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. The Bible is the, the pinnacle and the, you know, the pillar of, you know, of, a, of the Catholic faith, and without which we have nowhere to stand. You know, through philosophy, we can understand the what God is. You know, what God is. Does God exist? That can be answered through philosophy. But with Scripture, you find out who God is and who God is and how He reveals Himself to us. A question that can only be answered through the Scriptures. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. glad you joined us for Franciscan University Presents. This entire program is taped right here at Franciscan University's Communication Arts Studio. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment here. Uh, our panelists, uh, Regis and Scott, are members of the faculty here uh, at Franciscan University. This entire program comes forth from the heart of Franciscan University. Uh, today we're continuing to discuss uh, the Bible basics uh, with Dr. John Bergsma. John, we talked about the uh, importance of covenants and, yes. and their role in the Old Testament. And, and now let's see, what, what do they point forward to? How does that help us understand the New Testament and really the New Covenants? Then? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the word testament is simply a, a Latin translation of the word covenant. Mm. So when we talk about the New Testament, uh, we're talking about the New Covenant. Um, and as Scott has pointed out many, many times, before the, uh, before the New Testament was a book, it was the Eucharist. I mean, the mm-hmm. New Covenant was the Eucharist. That's what our Lord says in Luke 22:20 20, when he speaks over the cup and he says, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood, mm-hmm. which I take to mean consisting of my blood. So the, the greatest, you know, we talked in the last segment about, you know, is any covenant more important? Well, in a sense, we should immediately say, well, yes, the new and eternal covenant that comes at the end that is the most important. It comes to us through the Eucharist. Jesus establishes it in the upper room. 
uh, with the disciples. Um, he says, this cup is the new covenant consisting of my blood. And we, we talked about how a covenant is the extension of kinship by an oath or God inviting us into his family. And we see that in a very graphic form at the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper where, he, where Christ calls his body and blood the covenant and then gives it to them to eat. Well, you are what you eat. And so as they're eating the body and the blood, they are becoming blood to Christ. You know, we talk about blood brothers and he's blood to me, etc. Well, now they are the family of Christ. They're the family of God. And so that family uh, status is being given to them through this sacrament. That's the most profound way of making a covenant that I can imagine. So really, you know, every time we go to Mass, we're being invited into the family of God. We're taking God's body and blood into us and being united to Him. This is the new covenant that's never going to pass away because there's nothing better than this. Right. And it's so significant that Jesus never utters the word covenant on any other occasion in all four Gospels. Mm -hmm except in the upper room when he's instituting the Eucharist precisely as the New Covenant or the New Testament. That, that it's a sacrament many, many, many years before it starts to become a document. And that's what the document itself testifies to. But even the language of testament, I mean, even if it's not the most ideal translation, at least it captures the familial quality because typically you write a testament as a last will for your beneficiaries, your heirs, who are typically your children. You know, and so in the Old Testament, you and I both know there are these four major episodes where, you know, uh, Israel gathers his 12 sons at his deathbed and blesses them in a testamentary act to renew the covenant to keep the family going after he dies. Moses gathers the 12 elders and the 12 tribes at the end of Deuteronomy for the same reason. Joshua at the end of Joshua gathers the 12 tribes and the 12 elders. Samuel does before he dies. So when Jesus gathers the 12 before he dies to bless them, knowing that he will rise, but he's giving to them the sacrament that is going to make us a family in a way that surpasses anything that Israel or Moses, Joshua or Samuel realized, but it's precisely the fulfillment of all of those testamentary acts whereby a covenant is renewed so the family can continue even after this illustrious father figure has died. Yeah. You know, I, I've often uh, wished that uh, the communication that went on uh, between Christ and those uh, privileged disciples on the road to Emmaus mm -hmm. could be made available. Yeah. I mean, could well, it is. He drew <clears throat> on the ground with a stick, yeah. his little stick figures, and they're found <laughs> in my book. Yeah. Yeah. He went through the whole mountain. What a breakthrough. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You need to write a sequel, <laughs> uh, I think. But in fact, uh, the summary that the two of you just uh, 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 presented, I, I think, is, is a fair approximation of what Jesus must have said. He, you know, he unburdens himself uh, and the scriptures of their meaning. He unpacks what the whole thrust of, of, of this uh, self-revealing word is. And it, it couldn't be more thrilling. I mean, it's an inconceivable intimacy that, that God forges through his son with the world, the same world that conspired to kill him. I mean, he couldn't get any closer to us than to allow us to take hold of him and slowly torture him to death. And then he breaks himself to become our bread. Oh. More people, I think, uh, need to know this. Yeah. And I, I suspect a lot of people who go routinely uh, to Mass don't know this. 
That's right. Yeah. I don't think any Catholic sitting in the pews on Sunday, one understands, very, very few probably understand the covenant in that sense. Yeah. But also, I mean, that's the, that's the perfect paradigm for the liturgy. Yeah. Here is Christ unfolding salvation history, and it ends with the Eucharist. And, and the, yeah. they, I mean, that, that there's a tie-in between this. When we look at the old, how does that point forward? I mean, how does some of those covenants are, get revealed in the new covenant? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, and I try to show this in the book, but uh, you know, Christ begins a whole new human race, um, yeah. a human race characterized by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's like a new Adam. Mm. Okay, uh, he saves us through water and wood. Okay, he saves us by the waters of baptism. He saves us through the wood of the cross. There was somebody in the Old Testament who did that too, Noah. <laughs> You know, you know, save the world through the waters and the wood of the ark. Okay, so our Lord is a, a new uh, Noah figure. Um, our Lord in his earthly ministry led his followers up onto a mountain and gave them a new law from heaven. Well, we know there was a guy who did that in the Old Testament as well. Yeah. Moses, who walked up on a mountain sign and gave them the law from heaven. Um, our Lord is the, the son of David. Every time he uh, exercises someone and casts out a demon, the people say, can this be the son of David? Why do they say that? Because back in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 16, when David was anointed, he was given the power of exorcism, and so he would go into King Saul's court, play on the lyre, which is the ancient guitar. He would play praise music, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's, <laughs> he's strumming that out, and as he's playing that praise music, the demons are fleeing. So when people see the demons fleeing from Christ, they say, this is a new David that's come. Mm. So in all these ways, we, you know, if, if we read the New Testament, understanding the history, the story of Israel that we see in the Old Testament, we see, wow, it's deja vu again and again, as uh, all the characteristics of the great figures of the Old Testament, the great mediators of the Old Covenants are being fulfilled in Christ. It's all coming to a grand finale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Clopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, yeah. you know, were relating to this stranger what they took to be an abject failure. Yeah. And the stranger turned it around and showed, no, this is a divine fulfillment. Yeah. You know, how do you move from failure to fulfillment? Well, you know, we do that in our own lives. In our brokenness, God's mercy reaches down. But in the same way, I think when we discover in the sacred scriptures that, that Adam's catastrophic transgression becomes this occasion for an upward fall because the new Adam comes and he ends up in a garden just like Adam being tested, only he goes to the right tree and not the wrong tree. And the fruit of the tree of life is what the Eucharist is according to the early church fathers because they got this trajectory. They got the, the, the similarities and the dissimilarities, the promises that God made after the failures and then the fulfillment. But when the fulfillment comes, it isn't a ticker tape parade. You know, it's a crucifixion. It's a Roman execution. But even that is transformed when you see that he is giving his life when he institutes the Eucharist before the soldiers can take it there at Calvary. And so while we have to lose our life through the Eucharist, we realize, no, it can also become a gift. That we can receive the gift of his life and transform the loss of life into a gift of love. It's like, this makes sense out of family, failures, and at the same time it creates this sense that divine fulfillment didn't end back in the first century. It's still going on in the 21st. Right. Yeah, every time we go to Mass, especially. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if people through my book or someone else's book get a feel for uh, the flow of the story of Scripture, right. when you go into Mass, you, you start to see, oh, whoever set up these readings with this first reading, <laughs> the song, right, second, right. 
They knew what they were doing. Yeah, There's yeah. like a method to this madness, <laughs> and you start to get excited about it. You start to get interested, and you start, you know, you know, looking for the themes. I assign my my boys when when we go to mass. I say, okay, look for the theme. J try to figure out right. why this has been put together. And so, if you know the big story. Uh, then, then these snippets that we get in Mass start to be uh, meaningful because you, you know the context. And every Mass, uh, you know, every Sunday Mass, every um, feast day Mass is set up so that we can see that what the Scriptures are talking about come to fulfillment when we come forward and commune with God through that sacrament. Yeah. And that's yeah. really what it comes down to is the communion, right? Exactly. It isn't covenant ending with a communion. communion with the, the New Father. Testament fulfills the old, but right. the New Testament is not primarily a document. Right. It's right. the sacrament we're about to receive. And, and the new is not reducible to the old. It, it, it does, right. in a sense, transcend it. It right. completes it. Uh, this orchestration is so perfect that you're right. You, you might almost imagine it had been divinely inspired. <laughs> <laughs> there was a celestial conductor of, in charge here. I mean, this is the Catholic principle of grace not obliterating nature, but somehow consummating it, perfecting it, making it, making it complete. And, and all of this is anticipated, if, if I may say so, in Aristotle. If, if you read the poetics, he describes a story, you know, the, the progression, the momentum of a narrative. There's always a point which he calls the peripety, which is a kind of reversal, something unexpected, unforeseen. This stunning, unforeseen, unscheduled, seemingly, eruption of God into the story. Mm. I mean, the road to Emmaus, you're right, they set out thinking that this was just an ignominious uh, day. How can anything be salvaged from this? This is a washout, perfectly abject. And by the end of the journey, what was it, about seven miles, they sit down, they have a happy meal, and Jesus <laughs> figures everything out. This is the way it was supposed to be, a triumph. Yeah, the whole yeah. time their hearts are burning, yeah. but yeah. they can't see him. Right, right. And then suddenly when they see him, yeah. he disappears. And not because he's doing some vanishing act, but because right. in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, you are now trained and conditioned to perceive, to discern the resurrected Lord of Lords. And also the fulfillment of a plan that sure felt like a failure a few hours ago. Right. You know, and that's the sort of thing where you know, one book that consists of 73 books, one book that consists of the old and the new, 46 and 27, ah, it's overwhelming, until you get the story. Right. Right. Then the plot unfolds, and then that unexpected turning point comes yeah, yeah. just the same way our lives are scripted. Right. Right. And, and why don't our hearts uh, burn uh, more often? Well, uh, when you read ardently. a book, they will. Yeah, well, and I have to say, just, just that simple thing, just as a, as a non-scholar, reading a book like this, helping to unlock yeah. kind of that code, right. uh, it, it makes the liturgy that much more, like you said before, why are they saying, oh, is this the son of David? Yeah. Why do we understand that all of these things are fulfilled in Christ? Why do we understand, uh, you know, if we don't take the time to understand that, we will not fully appreciate what is happening in the Mass, right. why we have certain things, sure. uh, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, whether it be in Revelation uh, and how the Revelation is, is seen in the Mass, or to, to Genesis all the way through with, with Moses. What, what, what a comfort it must be to you, John, to know that your, your book can produce heartburn <laughs> in, yeah. in your readers. Well, you know, I think when we, go, when we go to Mass, we know that objectively God's grace is always there in a plenitude. Yeah. It's a fullness. Right. As, sure. as much as you want is available in the sacrament. Yeah. 
But there is a real sense in which it's limited by our capacity to receive it. Right. And I think that when we understand intellectually what's going on, and even more so emotionally we understand as well what's going on, we can dispose ourselves, we can be bigger vats to receive the right. grace that's available in the Eucharist. And yeah. so one of my intentions in the book really was to help people uh, understand so that they can receive more uh, every time they partake in the sacrament. Yeah, the sacramental participation is the key. You know, I, I, I can't help but think that this is going to be a breakthrough as it was in the early church. In the early church, as you've pointed out, you know, the New Testament is a sacrament, and they start calling the New Testament books the books of the New Testament at the end of the second century. The earliest references, yeah. the books of the New Testament. Well, the books of the New Testament, that's not the same thing as the New Testament. Right. The books of the Eucharistic sacrament. These are the books that are read in preparation to celebrate that. You know, then suddenly the New Testament becomes not just literature, but liturgy and life for that matter. And I think that you do a, a great job of making that come alive. In our uh, final segment, we'll make some really high points and sum up our conversation of getting to know the Bible. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. I absolutely think that the Bible plays plays a role education-wise. I think the role the Bible plays a role theologically, but just in the daily life of oh, you know, I really need to make a decision about whether to you know, do this or that. I, you know, I, you can turn to the Bible in prayer with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and really find incredible wisdom to apply to any aspect of your life. In the Bible, God speaks to us and He speaks to our hearts when we study Scripture we enter into a conversation with the Lord. And entering by entering into that conversation with Him in Scripture, it makes it easier to enter into that same kind of conversation in everyday life so that we can hear His voice more clearly in all that we do. My name is Kelly Butler and I'm a communication arts major. I took independent digital filmmaking. Definitely intense. Many all-nighters in the editing lab getting things done. Pope John Paul II has a quote, Do not be afraid to go out into the streets and into public places to preach Christ like the first apostles. That's what we're called to as Catholics and as Christians. You have that responsibility that every work you create should reflect Christ. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We've come to our final segment on Franciscan University Presents, and it's our time to wrap up our discussion of getting to know the Bible uh, with Dr. John Bergsma. Uh, Regis, would you like to start us off? Uh, do I have a choice? You don't. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so enthralled, really, by, by what you uh, have been saying and by your book uh, that uh, I'll try to keep my, my remarks uh, uh, to uh, a minimum. Uh, Besides, I've shot my wad. I can't think of anything <laughs> fresh uh, uh, to say. But I'm, I'm not a convert, uh, and that's why it's so uh, intoxicating uh, to talk to converts about Scripture, particularly if they've made a study of it. Uh, and not just a study, but have sort of consecrated their lives uh, to this study. I mean, it's, it's enriching. Uh, it's exhilarating uh, to sit at your feet. I wish I could take one of your courses, but I'm, I'm already committed to taking all of Scott's. <laughs> <laughs> Most Catholics, I, I think, don't read the Bible. We're subjected to it uh, in the liturgy, thank God. 
But I, I think uh, there's an indifference, really, uh, which is a kind of scandal, uh, and we'll have to answer uh, to God for that. Uh, but most scripture scholars, I, I suspect, don't reverence what they read. Uh, and you two uh, are a happy exception to that. You, you read the scriptures, uh, and more importantly, uh, you have a profound and pronounced, lively reverence uh, for what you read. This is God's word. This is correspondence from God. It's as if you were eavesdropping on a conversation that has been taking place within the Trinity from all eternity. I, I think that's why the Council of Trent uh, enshrined, enthroned the scriptures alongside the Eucharist on the altar uh, as they commenced their deliberations. I mean, Protestantism does not have an edge uh, over against us. We have the scriptures. We wrote the book, uh, and uh, we also have the Word made flesh. And that, I, I think, is what, uh, in, what any lively interest in scripture should, uh, should bring us to uh, uh, an intense confrontation with the living God in the Eucharist. Well said, well said. Scott? You know, if the last 30 or 40 years of the 20th century were spent with this sort of ecumenical approach to the Bible where you suppress your own distinctives, I think the, the next 30 or 40 years are going to kind of adjust where we're going to recognize not just distinctives to impose upon the text, but the distinctives that emerge from the text the Eucharistic and the sacramental, the liturgical, the ecclesial, that the church is the fulfillment of God's fatherly plan and all of the rest. And John, you know well that you know, there are a lot of others among us. We're not the only two, maybe here in the studio we are, but uh, there's a, a rising number of, uh, of young scholars, men and women, and it's exciting. But at the same time, it's down at the grassroots level as well. I mean, parish-based Bible study programs are taking off, Journey Through Scripture and other things too. But you know, the fact is, your book is an empowering tool because you never really learn something just by studying it or even taking tests and getting good grades. You learn it by teaching it. But then you're always kind of wondering, how can I teach it? I don't know it well enough. Well, when you get a tool like that book, Bible Basics, you know, then you not only can understand it, but through the stick figures and you know, the, the progression of the chapters, you're like, I could teach this to my junior high kids. Right. I could, I could do this with my high school kids. I could turn around and give them the book and have them teach their own younger siblings. That's empowering. That's exciting. And I think that's precisely what happens when people are reading this. They're not like, oh, now I understand it better. Phew, it's now anybody can understand it better. And now I have no excuse for not getting involved in teaching the Word of God as well as studying it for myself. And, and again, I just want to underscore the fact that you don't need a PhD. Sometimes a PhD is a major impediment, you know, but this really is a kind of license to go study and teach, and I thank you. Yeah, thank you, Scott. John? You know, I, my hope for the book is that it becomes part of our effort at the new evangelization. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love what Father Robert Barron said about the new evangelization. Among other things, he said that Christ will not be understood for his uh, compelling message, unless he's understood as the end of a long story of God's working with the people of Israel. And uh, the reason why Father Barron said that is because um, story creates identity. Story creates personality. Who you are is shaped by your story. And we, we know that because if we think of a person with amnesia, what goes is their personality. If they can't remember where they've been and what they've done, they're not really who they were. And in the same way, if we don't read the scriptures, which are the story of God 
and the story of his people, then we're like persons with amnesia who've lost our personality because we, we don't know the story that makes us who we are. So as, we're, as Catholics, we're interested in this new evangelization of sharing the gospel. In order for people to understand who Jesus is, we need to tell his story, and not just the story of his earthly life, but the longer story of which he's the fulfillment and the conclusion. And my hope is that with this little book, in about three hours, people can see the big outline of that story and say, aha, you know, at least, at least I made a start in understanding why this God-man is, is so significant, why his story uh, uh, should, sh should change my personal story. Right. That is great. That is great. John, thank you for being with us on You're the welcome. program, for sharing your insight. Um, your book really has made it simple and accessible, I think, to a lot of people. Um, this, this book, uh, Bible Basics for Catholics, uh, I would highly recommend it. It is one of those books that um, is easy to read. It's very uh, simple to go. And as Scott said, it makes it easy to teach it to others. Um, I'm going to be using this with my kids. Uh, my wife has already asked for it uh, to, to help go into uh, things further. If you've enjoyed today's subject, I'll have a special treat here for you. <clears throat> Just for asking, uh, in, uh, you are able to get a, a free diagram. That really is, is some of the beautiful artwork that we talked about earlier, <laughs> this stick figure. Um, but Isn't it that Rembrandt? That is, right. <laughs> you got a degree in, in theology, not necessarily art. Uh, but but it, it is a perfect didactic tool for kids and adults to see the uh, seven covenants uh, laid out in this book. Uh, that's free, available at uh, faithandreason.com or just by contacting us. Uh, this book really, uh, really will change the way you approach Scripture. Um, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all want to go deeper in Scripture, but there are many obstacles, many fears, uh, many wondering if we, if we have what it takes. Do we need the degree? Uh, do I have the energy uh, to, to really plow through this? I, I would suggest not plowing through the whole Scripture in one sitting, uh, but really get this book. It will help make sense of the big picture. Um, I know it really comes down for, for me uh, is I need a map. I need to understand uh, where I'm going. Without a map, I, I, the whole world is confusing. It's, it's a, a formless void in some ways, you know, uh, without that map to see how it all goes forward. Uh, and as we see how the, uh, the Old, in the Old Testament, the New is, is hidden there. It's, it, the, the seeds of the New Testament are planted there. But then in the New Testament, how it's fulfilled, how it's brought to new life, how it's revealed in, in a greater, greater sense of that glory. And to me, that is the beauty of this, whether it be at the Mass or whether it be studying and discussing with our families, our grandchildren, uh, in our parishes. Um, and so as we look at this, we are in very difficult times here uh, in, in this world. And uh, St. Ambrose said that in, uh, in praying, we speak to God, uh, but in reading Scripture, we are listening to Him. And I think we just need to listen to Him so much more in our daily lives. Um, Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents today. Franciscan University's mission is to change uh, the world through the students that we're forming. They're going out to change the world. And I invite you to be a part of that mission by getting your degree here on campus or by our distance education. Join us at one of our conferences or our uh, Holy Land pilgrimages or other pilgrimages to holy shrines or visit us at faithandreason.com. There's great videos. Uh, there's daily commentaries uh, on the Sunday readings from Scott and John Bergsma and others. Uh, join us there and stay engaged. Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. And until the next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you. 
download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.